and even put their political opponents in prison. I think they'd like to see me in prison. Can you imagine? Can I imagine? I can't stop thinking about it. Are you kidding me, man? You, you know what? Why? Because they're sick. Oh, they are? The Biden administration is completely corrupt. Oh, it's the Biden administration that's completely corrupt. Now I got it, Mr. Trump. Thank you very much, sir. You're not sick at all. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Lock him up. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in L.A., also 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. By the way, all this month loaded with pumpkin spice. So glad to have you here with us. Did you hear that, Des? I know you're a fan, a pumpkin spice fan. <laughs> I'm not that much of a pumpkin oh, you're spice not? fan. Oh. Not that much, no. <laughs> Well, anyway, we're loaded with something here all month long, so glad you could join us. The increasingly globalized struggle between forces of authoritarianism and democracy around the world continues apace today in political incidents, selections, and, yes, military battles, both large and small. Now, those who do not understand or appreciate this critical struggle or who have been brain poisoned by authoritarian supported and funded disinformation into either thinking this existential struggle is something other than it is or, you know, nothing to worry about at all or that somehow a rise of authoritarianism will finally help the scales fall from all of our eyes around the world so as to then give rise to a new progressive future. Well, those folks, sadly, are all part of the dangerous problem. I'm here to tell you, not the solution. The solution, at least our part of it, at least one small but indescribably critical part of it, is now playing out here in the U.S. and will come to a head in about 35 days as our own critical midterm elections are decided, along with control of both chambers of Congress and 
as it becomes clear whether Democrats will be granted the power by the people to overcome authoritarian structural imbalances that are built into our current constitutional system of federal representative democracy or not. In order to wrest back rights and freedoms secured by the people and currently endangered or taken away entirely already by a stolen, packed and corrupted Republican Supreme Court majority, which is now officially beginning their new first uh, their new term uh, as of Monday. If you thought their overturning of Roe v. Wade was horrific, well, you maybe have seen nothing yet. Thus, it's just one more reason, perhaps the most important reason, why Democrats must hold on to their majority in the House in November and increase their majority in the Senate to finally reform or eliminate entirely the undemocratic Senate filibuster in order to guarantee voting rights and privacy rights and reproductive rights and much more that the court and its right-wing enablers have been quickly eliminating for all of us now at breakneck speed. Right now, whether those Democrats, if they are granted the power by the people, if whether they act on such a mandate, if we the people manage to grant them one this November, or if we need to push them to do so, well, that's a question for another day. For now, and once again, I cannot underscore enough the importance of not only voting this year, but helping to make sure that others can do the same. And that they do do the same, that they cast their votes as well, no matter where you live in the nation. It is that important for reasons we have discussed and we will continue to discuss in the coming days on this program between now and November 8 and undoubtedly beyond. Little, as I see it, is more critical for Americans right now as a nation. Amid our ongoing existential struggle then, both here and across the globe right now, against the forces, rising forces of autocracy and the disinformation and corruption that insatiably feeds it, there is no lack of news to underscore that struggle today. More than 100 people are now confirmed dead in Florida alone as we go to air Following last week's climate change-fueled monster storm known as Hurricane Ian, even as the search continues for victims at this hour, questions are being raised about why state officials, including governor and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis, did not call earlier for evacuations from the storm's most likely areas of landfall. That, as we uh, discussed with E&E, <clears throat> E&E News's climate change impact journalist Thomas Frank on Friday's show, while a massive uh, number of Floridians are now certain to find themselves facing financial ruin if they, if they stayed alive, but facing financial ruin thanks in no small part to the same state officials criminally misleading them, lying to them for years about the risks of climate change and the costs of insurance to protect against it. These are inevitable climate disasters that so many of us saw coming, like this one that just struck the Sunshine State and Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina last week. But if you missed that show and my interview with uh, Thomas Frank on Friday, of course, you can download it and all of our other shows five days a week for free at bradblog.com. 
In the meantime, U.S. citizens in Puerto Rico are still dealing with the fallout from the other monster storm, Hurricane Fiona, that knocked out power and water across that island just over a week or two prior to Ian. President Biden was in Puerto Rico on Monday to address that ongoing disaster. If time allows, a little bit later, perhaps we'll share some of his remarks. For my part, I have become very concerned about how residents in both Puerto Rico and Florida are going to be able to cast their votes at all in this year's critical midterm elections, just 35 days away. I uh, certainly hope to have more on that in the coming days on the broadcast, as I'm having trouble for the moment even reaching some of those in Florida that I would usually turn to for insight in such matters. So I don't know. And if you look at those scenes of devastation across so much of the state of Florida, you have to ask yourself, how the hell are these people going to be able to vote in just 35 days time? By the way, uh, I know, you know, Republicans do not want to let anyone vote unless they show a very specific type of photo ID before doing so. But what if those IDs got blown away last week in Hurricane Ian? Does that mean their right to vote was also blown away with it? Lots to figure out in the uh, in the coming weeks in Florida and, as I say, in Puerto Rico Across the globe, meanwhile, in many nations today, authoritarianism is having a moment unlike any seen since World War II. Voters in Italy, as you know by now, have just literally voted into power a fascist political party formed after the fall of Mussolini. And that's not an insult. They actually are a fascist party formed after the fall of Mussolini. The political party used to be known as the fascists. And now they once again control the nation's parliament, where its new prime minister, Georgia Maloney, has been offering angry speeches that not only echo her party's fascist uh, roots, but employ revanchist, nativist, racialized, authoritarian language that is remarkably identical to that currently employed both by our former president as recently as this past weekend during a rally in Michigan, as you heard at the top of the show. Don't worry, I'm not going to play it anymore. I know it's like fingers on a chalkboard to many people, including myself. But uh, Maloney's uh, rhetoric in Italy mirrors Donald Trump and, yes, Russia's current leader, Vladimir Putin, who ordered sham referendums referenda literally at gunpoint for many Ukrainian voters who last week were forced forced to vote in those regions when members of the Russian army went door to door to collect ballots in four regions belonging to Ukraine but partially controlled by Russian military right now before Putin just last week then unlawfully declared those regions to be officially annexed as part of Russia because he waved his hands, he sent guns out to the voters in those four regions in eastern Ukraine and determined, well... We think they all belong to Russia now. For those unfamiliar or just wildly misled about how all of this worked, works, uh, last week's referenda were very different from the one held back in 2014 in Crimea, which gave way to Russia's also unlawful annexation of that military port region on the Black Sea. But as far as I know, back in 2014, they did not send around armed troops to people's houses to force them to vote. 
Immediately preceding and following last week's referenda and illegal annexation, areas of the very regions that Putin declared to now be part of Russia, well, they have continued to fall to advancing Ukrainian troops and to the fleeing Russians in front of them. Even as domestic unrest flares up across Russia following Putin's recent declaration that at least 300,000 Russians will now be forced, forcibly drafted, conscripted into the nation's faltering and illegal imperialist war against its sovereign neighbor of Ukraine. That is resulting in protests and violence in Russia and new threats from Vladimir Putin to use nuclear weapons as both his political and military fortunes continue to deteriorate. While the losses in both political and military power for Putin in the region is good for Ukraine's a heroic battle to defend its homeland, a weakened Putin and a weakened Russia also become a potentially more dangerous Putin and more dangerous Russia. Nonetheless, that is the fight. In the meantime, it is, of course, possible to lose the military war while winning the disinformation war, something that we are forced to address far too often on this program, as even many longtime progressives, sadly, have fallen victim to the very well-organized, very well-funded disinformation campaign emanating from the Kremlin and finding its way onto our own public airwaves. As longtime um, uh, progressive blogger Heather Digby Parton, a uh, friend of this show, uh, frequent guest. As a matter of fact, she was supposed to be on last week, and, and unfortunately, they canceled the January six hearings due to the uh, 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 due to the well, I lost my place here uh, due, due to the uh, storm that came in. I want to quote you what she had to say about the if I can find it. See, I've already lost my place. Uh, what did she have to? No, I don't know. I can't find it. Uh, it I'm sure it was it something was, fascinating. It was great. And yes, it was great. <laughs> oh, Actually. Well. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, let me see. Dig. Well, in the meantime, I can talk about how the sabotage of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines in, uh, have, uh, that caused that massive methane release Feel free. off the coast of Denmark and Sweden. Those leaks, luckily, have been stopped. However, the United Nations Environment Program estimates that the leaks were uh, could possibly, together, be considered the single largest methane release, accidental methane release, in world history, at least in the modern world history, on record. And, of course, methane is bad because methane is a very intense and potent climate-warming greenhouse gas. Of course, you say that it's accidental. And as you know, that Well, I guess uh, they mean, release... yes, you're right, an intentional release. They, they do presume that it was sabotaged, but uh, by whom, no one knows. By whom, no one knows. But those same disinformationists... Uh, on the right are now claiming it was the uh, it was somehow the the U.S. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I, why doesn't that make sense? Um, well, Dan Nexon, a professor of Georgetown University, mm -hmm. for example, says that the U.S. doesn't actually have much to gain from sabotaging these pipelines. Neither do the Europeans, because, of course, the Europeans are in the middle of a natural gas supply crunch that's causing prices to go up. And the U.S. does not do well as well when natural gas prices go up in the domestic 
capitalistic economy because that is actually bad for people who are running for re-election like President Joe Biden. So they say that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, whereas Russia in the past has a pattern of doing this kind of sabotage and then putting out disinformation regarding it. And yet, at the same time, that pipeline was already shut down. That pipeline was already not being used. So how that helps the U.S., how that helps Ukraine, how that helps uh, NATO in some way is unclear. And it really does actually, in a way, help Russia because if you are a contractor who is supposed to deliver via a pipeline, there are parts in your contract that say, hey, you have to deliver and there will be penalties if you do not. However, those penalties are waived for an act of God or some Uh, other accident that is on can't be stopped. Here is what Digby said that I think uh, that I want. You found it. Oh, yeah, I did. Uh, that I want to make sure that our, our, our listeners ponder, our, particularly our listeners on the left. Uh, Digby, uh, who is, uh, as I said, she's a frequent guest on this program. She is much beloved by progressives. Uh, she wrote this over the weekend at her uh, hullabaloo blog, quote, I am used to seeing the right wingers perform situational morality. They are shameless. But I confess that I've been stunned to see the anti-war left take what amounts to an endorsement of Putin's aggression. She writes, I just can't see how you can object to the American invasion of Iraq, as she does, as I do, but see the Russian invasion of Ukraine as an acceptable response to alleged NATO incursion on its, quote, sphere of influence, unquote. Imperialism is imperialism, she writes, adding WTF. Well, WTF indeed. And to that end, today, before I get to my guest today on a completely different topic, sort of, on the systemic corruption built into our own legislative branch of government, serving to corrupt both Republicans and Democrats alike in Congress, and no doubt making everything mentioned above far worse than it ever should have become, there is, by way of a warning, This story, perhaps a warning on several levels. Brazil's top presidential candidates will face each other in a runoff uh, runoff vote after neither got enough support to win outright on Sunday in an election to decide if the country returns a leftist to the helm of the world's fourth largest democracy or keeps the far right authoritarian incumbent in office. With almost 100 percent of the votes tallied, former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, otherwise known as Lula, had 48 and percent support and President Jair Bolsonaro had 43.2 percent. The tightness of the results just under six points with neither reaching the 50% uh, threshold to avoid a runoff at the end of this month, that tightness of those results came as a surprise to many since pre-election polls had given Lula on the left a commanding lead over Bolsonaro on the right. The last survey published on Saturday found a 50 to 36% or 14-point advantage for Lula, who ended up winning by just under six points. Does that sound familiar? And that was no small poll either, that one on Saturday. They interviewed 12, almost 13,000 people with a margin of error of two percentage points. That's far larger than virtually every poll that you will hear about for U.S. politics. And therefore, uh, that poll had a much smaller margin of error by far than ours, our polling does in general. And yet the far right party won many more votes than were expected than were predicted in that polling. 
Sound familiar? President Bolsonaro, who has repeatedly questioned the reliability of the country's electronic voting machines, sound familiar, did not challenge Sunday night's result, although he said he was waiting for more information from the defense ministry. He added that his far-right authoritarian party's good results in the Brazilian Congress, it won the most seats, could bring fresh support for him ahead of the October 30 runoff vote. Bolsonaro's administration has been marked by incendiary speech, his testing of democratic institutions, his widely criticized handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Sound familiar? And the worst deforestation, by the way, in uh, the Amazon rainforest for many, many years amid our ever worsening global climate crisis. But Bolsonaro has built a devoted base by defending right wing values, so-called rebuffing political correctness, presenting himself as protecting the nation from leftist policies that he says infringe on personal liberties and produce economic turmoil. Sound familiar? While voting earlier Sunday, one 53-year-old cited by AP as wearing the colors of the Brazilian flag, sound familiar, said that he is once again voting for Bolsonaro this time, and he doesn't believe the surveys that show him trailing. He doesn't think they're legitimate. He thinks they're fake news. Yeah, sounds familiar. Bolsonaro has claimed to possess evidence of electoral fraud, but he's never presented any, even after the electoral authority set a deadline to do so. He said as recently as uh, mid-September that if he does not win in the first round, something must be, quote, abnormal. It must be fraud. That, despite all of the polling that said he would lose, though, in fact, by even larger margins than he appears to have lost, at least on the uh, in the first round of voting on Sunday, according to those same untransparent voting computers they use across Brazil. Analysts fear that he has laid the groundwork to reject the results Bolsonaro has if things don't go his way in the final vote. During his seven terms as a fringe lawmaker in Congress, uh, in the, in the uh, Congress's lower house, Bolsonaro regularly expressed nostalgia for the country's two-decade military dictatorship. That's a concern. His overtures to the armed forces have raised concerns that his possible rejection of election results, if he rejects them, on October 30, in the final round of voting, could be backed by the top military brass. If it comes to that on Saturday, Bolsonaro shared supportive social media posts by right leaning foreign politicians, including former U.S. President Donald Trump, who called on Brazilians to vote for Bolsonaro. Israel's former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and Hungary's far right prime minister, Viktor Orban, also praised Bolsonaro. Just to give you an idea of how the world's authoritarians are gathering in a way that we have not seen in many decades. Another Bolsonaro voter told uh, AP uh, that uh, she had no doubt Bolsonaro will not just be reelected, but if Lula wins, there can only be one explanation for it. Fraud. I wouldn't believe it, she said, citing a reason that may also sound very familiar. Quote, where I work, where I go every day, I don't see a single person who supports Lula. Well, that sounds persuasive. 
I should also note that uh, as a Brazilian political science professor, Rosana Pinheiro Machado, noted last night on Twitter, there will, quote, be a second electoral round. Lula is ahead of Bolsonaro and his chances are high. But Bolsonarism has been demonstrated to be stronger than many people predicted. Key players of denialism and fundamentalism were elected for the Congress, she notes. But, as well, Brazil also elected two trans women for the Congress for the first time, as well as other key popular and indigenous leaders. They were elected as well. So I share all of this, all of this information, as a warning in the way that I suggested a focus on the Brexit election, which came just before Donald Trump's 2016 win, when pretty much everyone else on the airwaves was telling you there was no way it could happen, that no way Donald Trump could win, no way Brexit was going to pass. Well, Brexit did pass. And I warned at the time it could foreshadow a win for Donald Trump, and apparently it did. So I share this information with you out of Brazil in hopes that those of you who may have heard of late that Democrats may do better than expected in this year's election— um, that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, when things like this happen, when we get to these elections, no matter what the polls may say, for whatever reason, Republicans tend to perform much better in elections than the pre-election polls would suggest that they will. So take note. Please note this time. I will also note that those pre-election polls have been tightening up in recent days in favor of Republicans in both the House and the Senate, as well as in state races. So <clears throat> I urge you, take nothing for granted over the next 35 days. All of this matters. Ignore anything and everything regarding conventional wisdom at this point. Your nation and your democracy need you right now, need you to vote, need you to help make sure that everyone else you know and meet does the same. As we've been trying to warn, nothing less than representative democracy itself is truly at stake this year. Let's take a quick break, uh, and we will come back to something completely different, even if it's uh, completely related in one way. A new bill was introduced in Congress this past week to once and for all get members of Congress out of the business of buying and selling stocks, particularly after a new analysis finds that at least 97 of those members of Congress from both major parties have financial interests in companies that they are supposed to be overseeing in their committee roles in both the House and Senate. It's kind of insane. We'll talk about it next. Longtime government ethics expert Craig Holman of Public Citizen joins us to talk about it. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. And the money kept rolling in from every side. 
to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. North Carolina's retiring Republican U.S. Senator Richard Burr and his wife bought and sold shares of tons of health care companies while he sat on the Senate's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. And they traded in energy companies while he sat on the Finance Committee's Subcommittee on Energy and Natural Resources. Famously or infamously, two of the sales of the drug company AbbVie occurred in February of 2020, when he offloaded stocks worth more than $1.6 million immediately after receiving private briefings from health department officials as a committee member explaining how COVID-19 would impact the economy. Burr then dumped all of his stocks in a single day, a week before the market crashed back in 2020. He not only saved himself a fortune, he also informed his brother-in-law in in a 50-second conversation who immediately followed suit. Those sales uh, would come would later come under scrutiny by both the Justice Department and the SEC. The Justice Department, for whatever reason, dropped its investigation into Mr. Burr in 2021. The status of the SEC inquiry could not be determined by The New York Times. Whether he violated laws or not, the trades certainly appeared to be a clear conflict of interest as a senator on a committee making decisions about drug companies and receiving insider briefings on what would become the worst pandemic in 100 years before the rest of the public even knew that it was coming. Overall, according to the Times investigation of stock transactions made by members of Congress between 2019 and 2021, Burr reported trades in 38 companies during that period. Nine of them posed direct conflicts of interest or the appearance of same with industries with whom committees that Senator Burr uh, sat uh, sat on uh, on on a committee that had some sort of some form of oversight of those companies. Burr was, of course, by no means alone in the Senate, nor are such conflicts with stock purchases or sales a problem only for Republicans with the Times finding at least 18 U.S. senators who either held or sold stock in companies with whom committee assignments posed a conflict or their direct family members did. It was sort of stunning, uh, referencing this New York Times report, how many senators' wives seem to be very, very active in the stock market. By way of just one example, Connecticut, uh, Connecticut's Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal's wife is a beneficiary of a family trust that bought one and a half million to more than three million in shares of wireless communications site owner, uh, a, a wireless communications site owner, while that he was sitting on a Senate Commerce Subcommittee that oversees, guess what, communications, media and broadband. A spokesperson for Mr. Blumenthal said that he, quote, neither owns nor has any vested interest in any individual stock himself. 
She added that two stocks he reported owning, the wireless site company and the social media platform Pinterest, were actually owned solely by his wife's trust, and the filings would be amended, a step that he subsequently carried out since he had said that they were his. But once he was called out on it, apparently they weren't his, they were his wife's. Overall, the Times found trades in 103 companies reported by Blumenthal, with at least two of them appearing to show conflicts with committee duties. This issue also occurs in the U.S. House, where, for example, Georgia's Republican Congressman Rick Allen reported trades in the pharmaceutical companies Merck and Johnson & Johnson while serving on an education and labor committee that was considering prescription drug price legislation. The Times found 25 reported trades by Allen, including at least three potential conflicts. The matter is also an issue among leadership in both the House and Senate. Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, he's a real estate and technology investor. He bought and sold 25 to $81 million worth of stocks, options, and other financial assets between 2019 and 2021, according to public filings. Pelosi has uh, said uh, has said that uh, she is uninvolved with her husband's investing, maybe so, but her Wide-ranging influence over policy and the scale of her husband's financial transactions have generated intense criticism about the lax nature of rules governing investing by members of Congress. Now, the speaker herself, she doesn't sit on any legislative committees, but she has immense power over what legislation actually makes it to the floor or doesn't including various proposals being considered to regulate stock trading by members of Congress and their immediate families. After initially opposing stricter measures than those in place now, Nancy Pelosi said in February she would support them if federal judges were also held to those same standards. And a bill passed by Congress this past spring evened out disclosure requirements at least a little bit between the two branches of government. But the Times found that at least 97 current members of Congress bought or sold stock, bonds, or other financial assets that intersected with their congressional work. 97 of them. Or they reported similar transactions by their spouse or a dependent child, according to the New York Times analysis published last month. U.S. lawmakers are not currently banned from investing in any company. Uh, even if they sit on a committee that supposedly oversees that company. But the trading patterns uncovered by the Times analysis underscore longstanding concerns about the potential for conflicts of interest or the use of inside information by members of Congress, according to government ethics. When contacted, many of the lawmakers said the trades that they had reported had been carried out independently by a spouse or a broker with no input from them. Some have since sold all of their stocks or moved them into blind trusts. Two said the trades were accidental. Not sure how you accidentally trade stocks, but eh, there you go. We know about these trades at all, largely due to a law that was passed and signed into law a decade ago, in 2012, by then-President Barack Obama. Over the last decade, the uh, Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act, or Stock Act, See what they did there Uh, through its transparency measures has showed us 
that members of Congress regularly trade stock despite conflicts of interest and allegations of insider trading, that according to the Campaign Legal Center last week. One of the clearest examples that people may be familiar with Uh, as to why congressional stock trading creates the appearance of corruption occurred at the onset of COVID-19 when dozens of members of Congress from both sides of the aisle traded $150 million worth of stock right after receiving confidential information about the looming pandemic. These trades gave the perception, if nothing else, that members of Congress were more focused on their stock portfolios than helping the public through the pandemic. Congress passed the Stock Act in 2012, which for the first time made insider trading laws apply to Congress itself, sort of. The Stock Act now requires real-time online disclosure of stock trades by members of Congress and their spouses as a means of enforcing that law, but it hasn't prevented members from continuing to buy and sell those stocks despite apparent conflicts of interest. The disclosure system of the Stock Act itself, says Lisa Gilbert, executive vice president of Public Citizen, should have prevented members of Congress from insider trading. In fact, she notes, it resulted in a dramatic reduction of stock trading activity by members of Congress. But she adds, it is time to take the next step and ban stock trading activity altogether by members of Congress and their spouses. Sounds like a good idea to me. Last week, a new bill called the Combating Financial Conflicts of Interest Act, was introduced in the House of Representatives to eliminate these conflicts of interest by prohibiting members of Congress from trading stock at all. The measure seeks to solve some of the biggest issues revealed over the last 10 years since the passage of the Stock Act. Members of Congress have routine access to confidential inside information of public policies that directly and substantially affect the economy and the stock markets, noted Craig Holman of Public Citizen last week, endorsing this new uh, 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 new legislation. The measure has also been endorsed by the Campaign Legal Center, which describes it as an important and necessary step to addressing legitimate public concern regarding conflicts of interest that may arise when an elected official has financial interest tied to an area over which they hold influence. Joining us now to discuss this seemingly long overdue piece of legislation is Craig Holman, a government affairs lobbyist on ethics and campaign finance rules on Capitol Hill for Public Citizen, the national nonprofit advocacy group that has been standing up to corporate power and demanding government accountability now in its 50th year. Oh, Craig Holman, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hi, Brad. I'm delighted to be invited back. Always delighted to have you here, sir. It has been too long. So I thought that, uh, Craig, the uh, Stock Act of 2012, that was supposed to prevent from happening the very thing that I just described that still seems to be happening, I thought. What went wrong with the Stock Act? And will the combating, terrible name, Combating Financial Conflicts of Interest Act, uh, if passed, will will it actually correct those problems finally? We passed the Stock Act. We wrote and passed the Stock Act with the belief that it would stop this type of insider trading. You know, prior to the Stock Act in 2012, it was perfectly what insider trading is illegal for you and I and Martha Stewart. But it was perfectly legal for members of Congress to do insider trading. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, and they were making use of it. 
uh, there was one economist who came out with a study that showed members of Congress enjoy a 12% higher rate of return than the rest of us on the stock market, which mm. meant either they're geniuses at trading <laughs> in the stock market or they know something that we don't know. Uh -huh. and quite obviously, it's it's the latter. Yeah. So we passed the Stock Act in 2012, which actually was quite a battle to pass it. Mm -hmm. uh, I initially had only nine co-sponsors on the bill itself. Mm -hmm. Congress had no interest in making uh, in in applying the insider trading laws to themselves. And then I got a call from a producer of 60 Minutes, Ira mm -hmm. Rosen, who is fishing for some news story for uh, for 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And I told him about this congressional insider trading. And 60 Minutes came out with this excellent expose. I went from nine co-sponsors to 270 within a week after that. And we we eventually passed the Stock Act. Now, the Stock Act had two main components to it. One is it made it clear that the insider trading law applies to Congress for mm -hmm. the very first time. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we were, were they, Craig, were they actually exempt? In other words, the insider trading laws exist, but did the insider trading laws say that if you are a member of Congress, these do not apply to you, essentially? It said that uh, any inside information uh, that was acquired from their congressional duties <laughs> was not uh, under the under the insider trading laws. Gotcha, okay. If they would have done insider trading in some outside business, it, you know, by gotcha. the normal standards, that would have been illegal. Right, okay. But information they gleaned from their official duties, that was not considered insider trading. Even though that's like the best information you could possibly get uh, was when you're a congressman sitting on a on a committee. Anyway, press on. I, it's amazing to me. So, yes, uh, that's that's absolutely right. And by the way, the second pillar of the Stock Act, and this is where we thought we would stop insider trading was real-time disclosure, online disclosure. Mm -hmm. So every, every member of Congress has to disclose online any any stocks they buy or sell. Mm -hmm. And I thought that alone would prevent members of Congress from doing, from even playing on the stock market. Mm -hmm. Turned out not to be the case. Uh, shortly thereafter, Representative Chris Collins was on the board of directors of one Australian company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and he's peddling his stocks of his company right on the house floor itself so i filed an insider trading complaint against him mm -hmm. and he was found guilty he was uh sent to prison although donald trump later pardoned him yep but uh you know it made me wonder did the stock act not work and so i did a study on on, on stock trading activity by members of congress and found two two fascinating findings. One is it did have a big impact. It reduced stock trading activity by members of Congress by two thirds. Mm. But the second impact was of those one third that are still out there trading, they are sitting on the same committees and in their same official capacities, mm -hmm. overlooking the same businesses that they're buying and selling stocks in. And uh, as you brought up uh, during the pandemic, it became very clear that this yeah. insider trading is still going on. You know, uh, you, you talked so much about uh, Richard Burr. Mm -hmm. it, it is even more revealing because Richard Burr has always played on the stock market, buying a little, selling a little, 
nothing very dramatic. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he comes out of this uh, briefing from health officials and the next day dumps all of his stock, <laughs> right. 1.7 million. Right. I mean, uh, to me, that's a glaring example of insider trading. And we had others doing the same thing. Senator Kelly Loeffler, mm -hmm. uh, Senator David Perdue, both in Georgia, yep. uh, created a, a, such a huge scandal that they were voted out of office and Richard Burr had to resign his chairmanship of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. Mm -hmm. So I thought we'd get this bill taking the stock out a step further and banning uh, stock trading activity altogether by members of Congress and, and their spouses. I thought we'd get it passed uh, before the election. But uh, Congress uh, adjourned last Friday mm -hmm. before finally dealing with this measure. Well, the measure is still alive. We're going to pick it up during the lame duck session after the election. And, but and, I really thought we'd pass it before the election. Well, even had you passed it before the election, it would have only passed the House, right? Were you also expecting to pass it in the Senate as well? I was hoping the Senate would have had an opportunity to come back in uh -huh. the month of October. They have a two-week window there. They could have come back and, and picked up the bill from, from the House side. Gotcha. You know, it is really quite interesting, too, because this banning stock trading by members of Congress was so popular. We had about eight different bills introduced by various sponsors in both the House and the Senate, mm. and which it was great. I mean, it showed enthusiasm for the measure. But I realized that's a problem. We've got to get the House and the Senate to agree to one bill mm. or we're not going to get anything passed. And uh, the Senate came up with its consensus bill. Nancy Pelosi, much to her credit, uh, overcame her own conflicts of interest involving mm. her husband, who mm -hmm. was very big on the stock market, mm -hmm. and came up with a sweeping consensus bill. But we could not get them to actually bring it up to a floor for a vote. Uh, so we've got to pick it up again coming up in the lame duck session after the election. And and so, and I want to uh, find out about who is actually supporting this, but as far as the bill itself, the, the Combating Financial Conflicts of Interest Act, this would make it unlawful, essentially, to buy and sell stocks at all if you were a member of Congress and your immediate uh, family members as well? Uh, that's right. Spouses, dependent children, members of Congress, and senior congressional staff would have been prohibited from buying or selling any stocks. Any stocks that they currently would have owned, mm -hmm. they would have had to divest, either sell them mm -hmm. or move them into a blind trust or into a, a mutual fund. Uh, so they'd just be prohibited altogether from playing on the stock market. And it really was remarkable that, that Pelosi and, and Zoe Lofgren were able to come up with this kind of sweeping bill because initially they really did not like doing this. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Pelosi, Pelosi's husband makes millions on the stock market and uh, they just didn't want to go this far. And he um, would and he would no longer be able to do so if uh, if this passes, he would have to put everything himself into a blind trust or divest or whatever. That's right. He can no longer own stocks or trade or buy or sell stocks which, on the market. Which uh, brings up, well, two several points here. Uh, well, is, is there a concern 
that uh, is sort of devil's advocate here that, you know, this will make uh, potential Americans less interested in running for federal office because their husband or their wife or their kids will no longer be able to do whatever it is that they do if they happen to be involved in the stock market. Is there any concern about that? Well, not on my end, but that <laughs> is that is one argument that you always run into. Uh-huh. But quite frankly, if you've got a huge financial conflict of interest with your official duties of serving in Congress, I don't want you here. Yeah. So, uh, if you're not going to get rid of that that conflict of interest, you pose more of a threat to the integrity of our legislative process, no matter how competent you are. So. so it's not too much to ask that members of Congress divest themselves of direct financial conflicts of interest. Yeah, especially since they were sort of given a chance with the Stock Act. I mean, this is for the last 10 years. They sort of had a chance and they didn't do it. And as I understand it, uh, there was at least 72 members of Congress who have not even reported their financial transactions as required under the Stock Act, according to the Campaign Legal Center. So uh, whether that bill worked or not, uh, members of Congress, many of them don't appear to even be following it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, that uh, that's just kind of remarkable. Uh, and the reason why so many of them felt they could get away with it was because the penalty we had for mm -hmm. not reporting your stock transactions was so minor that members of Congress simply didn't care. It simply was a $200 fine. Right. We're not reporting your stock transactions. And, you know, most of these members of Congress are millionaires. Yep. Uh, they really couldn't care less about a $200 <laughs> fine. So un under Pelosi's consensus bill, uh, she significantly upped or would have upped the penalties uh, so that they'd have to pay a fine that would keep on doubling and doubling and mm -hmm. doubling for as long as they don't pay it. Uh, so uh, it, 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 Pelosi's bill was was an excellent sweeping bill. And we've got to keep it alive. We've got to get it back. Well, and that's the question. Who is currently supporting that? I mean, you sounded like you were pretty confident that this was going to happen. Uh, of course, all sorts of things come up and, and prevent something like this from happening. But who is currently supporting this? Is it, does it have bipartisan support? And frankly, who is opposing it? Who is holding it back, Greg Holman? Uh, well, it, it appeared to have almost consensus support among the Democratic caucus. And there were a few Republicans who backed this. But uh, on the Senate side, the reason why the Senate didn't get around to its consensus bill, Senator Jeff Merkley, who was uh, the biggest proponent of this legislation, mm -hmm. couldn't get more than two Republicans mm -hmm. to co-sponsor the bill on the Senate side. And uh, so I was I was then just counting on the House passing this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I, I assumed all the Democrats in the House were going to back it. And so I, I really did believe it was going to pass. But what ended happening is it made me realize, just like with the Stock Act, members of Congress really don't want to impose these types of ethics restrictions on themselves. Mm -hmm. And if they can come up with a reason to avoid doing it, they will exploit that. And uh, it was Steny Hoyer that broke the Democratic uh, support for the bill on the House side. Steny uh, just said, you know, 
it privately in meetings, Steny was opposed to the legislation, mm -hmm. but publicly he never said he was opposed to it. Mm. He just said he needs time to read the bill. Sure. The bill was just finally written on Wednesday of uh -huh. last week uh -huh. and we're heading for a floor vote on Friday. And he just decided to break ranks with the Democratic caucus and uh, bring it to a halt. <sighs> Steny Hoyer, I knew it. Uh, why am I not surprised about that? By the way, uh, Craig, if it doesn't get, you know, if it looks like it can't pass in the Senate, because as you say, only two Republicans are currently in favor of it in the Senate. And I assume it can't, a bill like this could not be passed under reconciliation with a bare, uh, democratic majority. Uh, could it be passed as a rule in either house? In other words, if the Democrats really mean this, <clears throat> could they pass it as a rule in their own house, in the House of Representatives, even if they can't get it passed uh, in the Senate as as law? They could pass it as a rule, but still in the Senate side, even rulemaking is subject to uh, uh, to that supermajority vote. So we have to get mm. 10 Republicans on the Senate no. side. Gotcha. But, by the way, I mean, I, I was trying to convince Merkley, uh, just, you know, roll the dice, bring it to a floor vote in the Senate, mm -hmm. because just like with the Stock Act, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't sign on as co-sponsors until they felt embarrassed to do so. But once we brought it up to a floor vote, many of these Republicans did not want to go on record opposing the Stock Act. Yeah. And I, I got a feeling we would have got 10 Republicans on the Senate side uh, supporting it on a floor vote. I was trying to convince Merkley of that, but Merkley was not so confident. I suspect, uh, Craig Holman, you will keep on uh, working on exactly that. And if anyone can get this through, uh, I got my money on you, brother. Craig Holman <laughs> is the uh, public, public citizen government affairs lobbyist uh, for a long time now and doing extraordinary important work. Uh, you can find out about uh, this act and much more at citizen.org. And you can follow Craig on the Twitters at CB Holman. And of course, public citizen is there as well. Public underscore citizen. Uh, fascinating effort, Craig. Can't thank you enough for coming on and uh, talking about it and uh, for uh, trying to get it pushed through in the first place. Please stay in touch. I, I suspect you're going to get this one done, Craig. I got my money on you, brother. I'm hoping so. But unfortunately, it's got to be after the election now. And, and thanks for inviting me on your show again, Brad. Always a delight to talk to you, my friend. Look forward to doing it again soon. All right. We got to take a quick break here. We are back with our closing few minutes on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. All right, welcome back. It's The Bradcast, our closing few minutes today. As the death toll continues to rise from last week's Hurricane Ian in Florida and the Carolinas currently topping 100 confirmed dead as of airtime. President Biden was in Puerto Rico on Monday to show support for the American Protectorate Island following Hurricane Fiona from two weeks ago. Oh, yeah, that other storm, vowing that unlike after Hurricane Maria, when the Trump administration largely left the island to its own devices, the Biden administration planned to make sure they got uh, that Puerto Rico got the aid that was needed and that they were able to build back 
until the job was done. Here are a few of Joe Biden's comments from Puerto Rico on Monday. And yes, Puerto Rico is a strong place, and Puerto Ricans are strong people. But even so, you have had to bear so much and more than need be, and you haven't gotten the help in a timely way. You know better than anyone that over time, these losses add up, and you deserve every bit of help your country can give you. That's what I'm determined to do, and that's what I promise you. After Maria, Congress approved billions of dollars for Puerto Rico, much of it not having gotten here initially. We're going to make sure you get every single dollar promised. And I'm determined to help Puerto Rico build faster than in the past and stronger and better prepared for the future. We know that the climate crisis and more extreme weather are going to continue to hit this island and hit the United States overall. And as we rebuild, we have to ensure that we build it to last. We're particularly focused on the power grid. This year, to date, Puerto Rico has received $4 million to help make the power grid more resilient. That number is going to go up. And as I've made clear, at times like these, our nation comes together, put aside our difference, our political differences, and get to work. We show up when we're needed. And I want the people of Puerto Rico to know I'm committed to my entire administration's committed to standing with you every step of the way, as long as it takes. I want to say it again. We are not leaving here as long as I'm president until everything. I mean this sincerely. Until every single thing that we can do is done. And God bless you all. And uh, for uh, and all of you who are hurting, and may God protect our troops and all those brave souls that risked their lives to help others survive this tragedy. Thank you very much. That was President Biden in Puerto Rico on Monday following Hurricane Fiona uh, several weeks ago now knocked, that knocked out power to the island. I don't believe he threw them any rolls of paper towels, but, you know, we'll find out. <laughs> he did not. Oh, good. Uh, glad to hear it. Uh, I, and I think the president is now heading to Florida to the next disaster, Hurricane Ian, on, on Wednesday. He'll on be in uh, Florida on Wednesday to go through that. Thank you very much. That is Desi Doyen, our producer. Thank you. Thanks to Yount Orozco, our board operator today, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. My apologies. We weren't. We did. We ran out of time. Didn't have any time to get to the phones today. We'll try to do again soon, however. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. I look forward to seeing you there. Until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh,